Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. So if you would look to Acts chapter 2, first and verse 40, as we'll finish this chapter out from where we left off last time. And where we were at last time was in Peter's first sermon that we see in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, as we see Peter start to assume his leadership role as he proclaims the gospel for the first time since Jesus' ascension. And Peter teaches a powerful sermon And we see towards the end of that in verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? There was conviction that happened as a result of the sermon that Peter taught. There was conviction, there was awareness of sin, and we'll see that happen again in the second sermon that Peter teaches here in chapter 3. Conviction, conviction of sin is necessary to come to a proper understanding of our need for a Savior. And so when they say, what then shall we do, as they were cut to the heart, as they were made aware of who they were and what they had done and, and their position relative to God, they said, what is it that we shall do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. There it is again, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So if you would agree with me in prayer as we go into our study here today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which you exalt above your own name. We thank you for the book of Acts and how it speaks to us, Lord, regarding the the model for the church, how it gives us understanding of the early church, how we can see within it the teaching of the apostles. And as we'll learn today, our need for, as Christians and as the church, Lord, to abide in that teaching, to be steadfast in that teaching, to continue in the truth of the word of God. And so, Lord, give us understanding. We pray today through the power of your Spirit, Lord, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that we might have understanding of the Word of God, that we could leave here today, as I prayed earlier, transformed, Father, more in love with you, having a greater understanding of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, of your desire and will for our lives, for how we're to live for you each and every day. Give us a passion for the Word, Lord, we pray. Be here in our midst now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so in verse 40 then, we read, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now the first thing I see here when I see that Peter's saying to them, Be saved from this perverse generation, it makes me think, That generation was perverse? That generation was lost? Nearly 2,000 years ago? Well, where are we today? I cannot in good conscience believe that we have somehow become more advanced, though we claim to be. I cannot believe that we've somehow become more moral, when in this particular time, though misplaced, there was such an emphasis on religion, that it was the structure by which they lived, that though, yes, absolutely, we need to have a relationship over religion, that still a basis for religion produced a certain element of morality that we've no doubt lost today. And so if Peter says to them, this perverse generation, then my goodness, what must we be living in today? 
Yet it was. It was a generation that had perverted the gospel, that had perverted the way in which God had desired them to live, that had begun to twist and misunderstand principles of morality and how individuals were to live day in and day out, that even the religious leaders had begun to to teach, in some cases, false doctrine, or because of just their blindness and their pride, they didn't preach the, the truth as a whole. Whatever the case may be, Peter recognized that this was a perverse generation and he wanted them saved from it, saved through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And in verse 41, he says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. This is an incredible work of God, an incredible move of the Spirit here as Pentecost has been experienced. The, The Holy Spirit has come. As a rushing wind, it's anointed these disciples. They had spoken in various tongues such that the individuals who had come from from all over the land at this particular time, there were many people that were here, many people from different geographical areas because of the feast that was happening. And here this mighty move of the Spirit, and Peter preaches to them Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and he lays on their shoulders the burden of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it pierces them to their hearts. And they say, what do we need to do? He says, you need to be saved. You need to repent and be baptized. And so we see here just an incredible altar call is what happens here. Peter gives an altar call and 3,000 people get saved. They went from 120 to 3,120 plus. Well, that's an incredible growth of the church in such a short period of time. But that's what was happening. It was it was sweeping through. Now people were beginning to understand who Jesus Christ was. And the important thing then here is now these individuals are going to go back to the various towns and, and cities that they had come from, and, and they're going to start to preach the Word, and they're going to start to share. And this is now where we see the, the church starting to expand, the gospel being preached by which we are a product of here today. The fact that we sit here today, Calvary Chapel Northeast, we can look at this and we can say, these are our roots. This is where it began. And this is that they gladly received His Word and they were baptized. Now there are some who teach today the importance of once belief happens, that you need to be baptized, that those two things go hand in hand. And and as a pastor, I would say, well, they absolutely do. They definitely go hand in hand. And and I would love to see it happen where we see individuals saved, the gospel is preached, individuals are saved, and we have the opportunity then to baptize them. But it's not absolutely necessary that it occur within the same action. Okay, And that's why we don't have a baptismal here. But what we do have is the understanding that baptism is this is an essential thing for the believer. Not because it solidifies salvation, not because it's the final step to making sure you're good, that you're covered, but rather it's a proclamation of what has happened. And so as we see these new believers being baptized, the importance that we need to understand here is that this was legit. These people were saying, not only am I hearing the message, not only am I receiving the message, not only are we receiving Jesus Christ and being transformed by the knowledge of Him, but we believe it. We absolutely believe it. This is a real thing, and we're going to be baptized so that we can show that we believe. And that's the importance of baptism for believers today. If you haven't been baptized and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be, as a way to proclaim to the world that you believe what you believe, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. The Harvest Crusades, Greg Laurie, Calvary Chapel, Pastor Chuck Smith used to be a part of these. 
they talk about the one in 1990 at Corona del Mar and how it still today stands as one of the uh, largest baptisms that's ever occurred. They said it was estimated uh, there was a little over 5,000 people there that day. They don't know the exact number of those that were baptized, but it, it was nearly the entirety of those who had attended. 1990, Corona Del Mar, and just one after the other, after the other, after the other, was professing salvation in Jesus Christ and being baptized. And so this does still happen today. This isn't something that we need to just look at and go, oh, I would long to experience that again. Yes, we may long for that, but the reality is we can. Revival can happen in this country again. If the truth of Jesus Christ is proclaimed throughout the pulpits of America and in the communities in which we live and and serve and work, 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued then steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So it says here that they continued steadfastly. This term steadfastly means that they had essentially a narrow focus, a single mind, a purpose to do exactly that, to follow in the apostles' doctrine. That's what their aim was. That's all they wanted to do. They wanted to follow the Word of God. And that's the same thing that should be true of us today. And when we think of the apostles' doctrine, we don't necessarily refer to it as such, but the reality is that's what we have within the New Testament. And so it begs the question of, is it your single aim today? Are you so focused today on making sure that you abide within the teaching of the Word of God? That as you make decisions, as you go about your day, as you wake up in the morning, is your thought to continue steadfastly in what it is that God has called you to? To be in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers together. What we see here as the church started is not different than the 120 that were of one accord in the upper room. But this begins to carry them through the early church. That they continued together in the teaching of the Word of God, that they were in fellowship regularly, that they were in prayer together, that they were breaking bread together, they were having meals together. There was a sweet fellowship that existed amongst these early believers. And it says in verse 43, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. We don't have an account of everything that was done through the apostles. We'll have an account here shortly in chapter 3. But there were many things that were accomplished through the apostles during this time of the early church. And it says, fear came upon every soul, and this was a healthy fear. This was a fear of God. This was a healthy understanding of how great God is and how important it is that we live in right standing before Him, that we keep and hold true to the Word of God. And now all who believed in verse 44 were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now this is where a lot of people get hung up on today, as they think, yes, this is absolutely what we should do. We should model the early church. We should be together. We should break bread together. But I don't want to sell all my things and give them away and support one another. That's communism. This was not an early form of communism. This wasn't a socialism type of situation here. And in fact, and here's the I guess you can call it good news for those of you that are relatively uncomfortable with this dynamic, is that we don't necessarily see this element of the church continue on an ongoing basis. We see a little bit of it through Acts chapter 11, but beyond that, we don't have much evidence to suggest that in the early church they were on a regular basis selling everything and living together and and sort of this communal living. And those of you that are thinking, okay, he's not going there today. Well, here's the reality. I don't know exactly what heaven's going to be like, but if this is a relief to you because you think, I couldn't stand living with this person or living with that person, well, guess what? You're going to spend eternity with them if you're both saved. So we better start figuring out how to like each other, right? So that 
potluck sign-up sheet better be full after service today. We're going to commit to being here in June for that picnic after church. But that is a principle. That is a principle. We should check our hearts in that way. If you are someone who thinks, oh, I just don't like that stuff. I don't like that time of fellowship. I don't want to, I just, I'd just rather go home and be by myself. Well, you need to take that to the Lord, truly. There are times when, yes, we can be alone with the Lord. But if you're finding yourself on a regular basis trying to avoid those times of fellowship, those times when you can be together with other believers, well, then that is a heart issue. I'm here to tell you. While we may not function today quite the way that we see within the early church, we should in many ways strive to be. And the more that we do, the more that that will grow. I am confident of that. It says that they were together. They had all things in common. And no doubt that wasn't just because it, poof, happened. Now, yes, the Holy Spirit is powerful, right? But I do believe that the more they spent time together, the more they shared their faith together, the more that they talked about the things that the Lord put on their heart, the more they spent time in the Word, the truth that they couldn't deny, that they had to wrestle together with the teaching of the disciples and say, okay, well, what does this mean? And how does this impact us? And how should we live in light of this? That the more they came together, the more love they had for one another, the more understanding they had of one another. And they did. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And the emphasis within that is that they helped to support one another. I'm not asking you today to go home and decide, okay, we've got to sell our house, we've got to sell all of our goods, and we're going to give it all to the church. Hey, if the Lord leads you to do something, don't let people tell you you're crazy if you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But I'm not asking you to do that, but rather to be aware of the needs of the body and ensure that we are supporting one another and helping one another. There should be a practical component of the church today that people who are within the church faithfully can count on their brothers and sisters to help them in a time of need. That should be evident. And it says, so they continued daily with one accord in the temple. Oh, there we go again. So they continued every Sunday and once during midweek together in the temple. No, it says daily, does it not? Daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So once again here we see what it was like within the early church. And I do believe that we should. We should compare ourselves to that. We should say, what is my desire as it relates to church? If there was something offered on a daily basis, would I be there? There are some of you here today, I know you would. You've shown yourself faithful in that regard. You convey the excitement. Whenever there's an opportunity to be a part of something, you're there. And we don't keep attendance, right? So if that's not you, we're not thinking, well, this person doesn't show up for this, and they don't show up for that. And we understand you have jobs and various things, but truly, this should be an area that you allow the Lord to search your heart and say, is that my desire? Do I want to be a part of things? They were together daily, in one accord, together, breaking bread from house to house. There was fellowship. Do you open up your home? Do you go to others' homes? Is there evidence of these behaviors amongst us here today? And they were praising God with simplicity of heart. And I love that. You see, church, the gospel, it's, it's simple. It is a simple thing. We complicate it. We complicate it. We, you know, we just came through a, a season, the, the Resurrection Sunday, the Easter season. And we did a few more things as a church this year, and, and I believe it went well. I mean, the feedback has been very positive from that. It was an opportunity for us to spend more time together, to worship the Lord, to focus on teaching. But there is always that fine line between how much do you try to accomplish before you're just making it more complex. You know, there's churches out there that they're still on 
sabbatical from their Easter week celebrations. They're thinking, I'm just entirely worn out. I'm tired. We just got to have a break because they made it so complex. But we see here that there was a simplicity of heart that they just spent time of one accord together in the Word, praising God, breaking bread together. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now some think it odd here that the disciples, that they continued in their visiting the temple at this point. And note here that they went during the hour of prayer, which would be in the afternoon following the afternoon sacrifice. And so they're there for a time of prayer. And I think two things need to be considered here. One is remember that Jesus Christ and Christianity are the fulfillment of the Jewish faith and the tradition. So we have Messianic Jews today. We have Christians who are practicing Jews. Jewish people who consider themselves to be Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. And while there are certain elements of Judaism that, in the Jewish faith that they ought not to practice anymore or depend on specifically, and they can't do this anyhow in terms of how the Jewish faith exists today, specifically the sacrificial system, there are elements that a belief in Jesus Christ is simply the fulfillment of their faith. Right? And so these things can go hand in hand. Unlike Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, where that faith system should be entirely left behind when surrendering to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Jewish faith is one that doesn't need to be entirely left behind with faith in Jesus. But again, in some regards, it could be what well, is fulfilled, but it can even be enhanced. And so to see the disciples continuing here to go to the temple should not give us cause for concern. It shouldn't cause us to be puzzled necessarily because there are absolutely elements of, of that faith that they would just continue to carry on. And I love it when I interact with a, a Jewish believer today. I mean, it gives me a greater understanding. It's an incredible dynamic of a believer that you're able to, you're able to see what was truly supposed to happen as the nation of Israel was to repent and recognize Jesus as their Messiah. But we have then the other component here, another likely scenario, and both can be true, that their frequent visits to the temple must be understood within the mission that they were given. Their ministry was to who? The Jews. That's who they were called to minister to. And where might they best go to speak to the Jews about Jesus Christ? To the temple to the place of religion, the place that they were faithfully going to. This was a prime opportunity for them to witness to Jesus Christ. And so there's likely here a missional component of their regular visits to the temple as they're getting opportunities to share about Jesus. Listen, if you have a passion to proclaim your faith, if you consider yourself a bit of an evangelist, if you love to share the gospel, that is awesome. And there are people who come to church on a regular basis and they get saved in church. But if you tell me that, hey, my mission is to go out and preach the gospel and seek and save the lost, and I'm just going to do it right here on Sunday mornings, well, then I'm going to say, well, are you called to be a pastor then? Are you wanting to teach the Word on a regular basis? I mean, yes, share your faith. But the reality is, when we think about that, we think, we got to go out. we got to go out and find those people who we know don't have a knowledge of Jesus Christ, aren't following Jesus Christ, whatever the case may be. Now, once again, that happens within the church, okay? But 
we've got to go out. We've got to go to where the people are who need to hear that message, who need to hear the Word of God. And, and we know that that was certainly the case, as in this case, Peter and John, as they go to the temple. And in verse 2, we read that, And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. So here's this lame man, cannot walk. He's dropped there on a regular basis at the temple, the gate called Beautiful, This particular gate was known for its beautiful construction, and it was a common place where women would enter the temple. See, this man is no fool. If you are going to beg for money, where are you going to beg? Where the women enter or where the men enter? Yep, there you go. You get it. You understand. Ashley knows I'm about to mention this, even though I didn't check with her beforehand. We grew up in southwest Michigan. So what city did we frequent often? Chicago. That's where everybody in southwest Michigan goes. If you want to go to the big city, you went to Chicago. Well, for those living in rural southwest Michigan, you really didn't come across many people who were homeless or who were begging or who needed something like that in that area. But when you went to Chicago, you were confronted with it in a big way. And as we'd make our way to Chicago, I'd give Ashley these pep talks. You don't have to give all of them money. Not all of them are honest. If you give them money, they're going to go do something bad with that money. You know? and, and right there in that very conversation would reveal both of our hearts that gave truth to the Scripture. And I'd say, no, 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 no. I'm skeptical. I'm not going to give this person. And she, you know, have quarters in your pocket. Be ready. Here, honey, you can, you can pass these out along the way because it's your heart to take care of every homeless person that's coming up to you, you know? And I don't mean to make light of it, but this is the truth. This is what you see here. And so he's sitting outside where the women are going in, and no doubt this was, and I'm not suggesting anything about this person's intent. Clearly, they were lame. They were, they were in a, a situation in life where they needed support. This wasn't somebody who was fooling someone, but they knew where they could get the support that they needed. And so here this man lay, and he's expecting something as people enter the temple. And then he sees Peter and John. Peter and John, they spent a lot of time together. And here they come, and and in verse 4, and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. And so he makes eye contact with this individual. He says, look at us. In verse 5, so he gave them his attention, expecting, as I said, to receive something from them. And then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have. Now let's pause there. If we were watching a movie of this particular event at this time unfolding, then the way it goes in my mind is you would hear that sort of screeching halt. Narrator steps in and says, let's talk about what this man's feeling at this time. As Peter says to him, silver and gold I do not have. This man was likely, okay, I'm going to disregard that at this point. You mean nothing to me anymore. You know what I need and you don't have it. Because many a beggar do not want to hear those words. They don't want to hear those words, silver and gold I do not have. And, and quite frankly, not just the beggar, but many who come to church. Let me clarify here. I'm not saying that everybody's looking specifically for money, but we are seeking something. Just like the beggar, there is an expectation that we have in our lives of various individuals, of church, of religion, of God. We have expectations based off of what we perceive our need to be. 
And so it's not necessarily wrong for those seeking help to expect, in our case, the church to help the church to meet a need in a particular way. We should be a people that can help those in need in a very practical way. We see that within the Word of God as well. We see that in James. But sadly, it's far too often become the focus. What can I get? What can you give me? And for far too many a seeker, they are expecting silver and gold and nothing more. Yet God still today has far more than silver and gold that he desires to bless us with, but our expectations are so focused on something far less. And Peter goes on to say, But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. You see, it's important to recognize here as well that Peter was indwelled with, led by, filled with the Spirit in this particular case. This wasn't just on a whim. He was confronted with this man, and he looked the man in the eyes, and no doubt the Spirit was leading Peter. And here Peter's demonstrating the gift of faith, the trust that he had in in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, to proclaim in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man be healed. And and we will see that as he addresses the crowd shortly, that this is the emphasis of what he shares. That this was done in the name of Jesus. Because as we've already established, there is power in the name of Jesus. Peter, in his confidence, does not just say then to this man, rise and walk, and, and moves on, but he goes and he lifts him up, and it's at that time that strength comes immediately to this man. Peter engages with him. He touches him. He lifts him up in confidence that I know this man is going to be able to walk. And he immediately receives strength. And so he leaping up at this point, he stood and he walked and he entered the temple with them. He went with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. Imagine this scene. Imagine the excitement. We can have here almost a picture of a new believer, right? Though we may not have experienced ourselves some sort of miraculous physical healing, this was the posture of our spirit when we came to know Jesus Christ, that we were leaping and we were shouting and we were excited. There was evidence here of a transformed life. The man who was formerly lame and a beggar, who was expecting something far less than what God wanted to give him, that day was now the product of miraculous transformation. So once again, so often we expect something, as this man did. Perhaps something from the church. But what we expect, like this man, will simply aid us in our current condition. You see, this man, he expected something. He had been doing this for quite some time. No doubt people knew this man who laid there and that if you feel so compelled, you're going to help to support this man so that he can survive. God doesn't want us just to survive. And like this lame beggar, we have in our minds the expectation of what we need, of what we feel like should be given to us, of what we feel like we need to survive, to simply remain in the condition that we are in. But the man was transformed. God wanted to change his condition. He wanted to bless him beyond what he thought he needed, exceedingly abundantly beyond that, and transform who he was. And when he does, we see him first, he sticks with the disciples, this man. So this is a great testimony to a transformed life as he says, hey, I'm going to go with these guys. 
I'm going to stick with them. I'm going to go into the temple with them. Secondly, he's leaping and walking. So he didn't just sit there and say, well, I didn't want to walk. I didn't want that. I was living a good life. People were just taking care of me. No, God blessed him. God gifted him, and he began to use that gift. He began to do something with what God had done in his life. And third, he glorifies then God. He praises God. You see, he embodies then what a life that is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ should show. That you would surround yourself with people who can continue to cultivate that in your life. That you should put to work the things that God has gifted you with. That you should be used for his purpose and his glory. And that you should bring glory to his name through your praises. That you had testified what God has done. And we see that immediately happen in this man's life. And in verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God. You see, they saw him. They were witness to this. And then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You see how his life now starts to have an impact immediately? that God is glorified, that people's attention is brought to the things of God because of the change they see in this man's life? Are there some who are filled with wonder and amazement when they consider the transformation in your life? Is your life a testimony to what God can do? Some of you may be sitting here saying, I don't have much of a testimony. I've been a Christian my whole life. I didn't deal with the things of the world like some people have, and so I just don't have much of a testimony. Forget that. Praise God. That is a testimony. You want to have a testimony for what God can do, you can be one who can say, look what God can do. God can keep you from the things of the world throughout your life. That it is possible. You can be an encouragement and an example to those who are younger in the faith. That it's possible. And then there are some who have such a testimony, and maybe you're still working through the transformation. Maybe you're still in a place where you're, you're struggling a little bit with some things, and, you, and God is working in you. And I say, keep it up. Continue. Continue to let God work. Continue to talk about the things that God is doing in your life. Continue to share with others the struggles that you have. We've got to be open and transparent within the body of Christ. Because you never know the struggles that you're going through be almost the exact same struggles that somebody else is dealing with in silence. Trying to fix it on their own. Trying to deal with it on their own. But yet the body of Christ should be open and transparent about those things such that we can encourage one another and build one another up. And and once again, then that testimony, that thing that God is doing can bring encouragement to others. It can bring wonder and amazement to others. And then there are some here today, but maybe your life isn't much of a testimony because you are effectively sitting on the steps outside of the temple, expecting something to just simply maintain you in your current condition, expecting something less than what God wants to do. And I'm here to tell you, you need to start expecting more. And I'm not talking about name it and claim it prosperity stuff. I'm not talking about, Peter said, I don't have silver and gold for you. What I have is bigger than that. It's greater than that. And I'm not telling you today you need to start expecting more in the material. I'm saying you need to start to expect more in terms of what God can do in you and through you. That maybe you've been struggling with something your entire life, and you've just come to accept it. And maybe you come to church on a regular basis expecting something that's just going to maintain. It's just going to sustain you. It's just going to get you through so that that struggle doesn't get you this week. When in actuality, you could have greater expectations for what God's going to do in your life, such that you could have victory over those things. 
I'm talking about expecting that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the work of God, that expecting and having confidence that God wants to do more in your life, that He wants to use you for His plan and purpose, that He wants to do more than what you are allowing Him to do today. That if you are basically ineffective in ministry and just getting through the day-to-day in your Christian walk, that there is so much more for you. Too much of the church today, particularly in America, has gotten to a place where they say, praise God, we don't have to worry about saying silver and gold we do not have. God's taken care of it. He's filled our bank account, and it's allowing us to be so generous. And see, that's the thing. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that every church out there needs to just be dirt poor and unable to do any form of ministry. But we place such an emphasis on that. And then we want to say, well, look at the building we've been able to build and look at the missions that we've been able to support and look at all these different things we're doing and all the benevolence we've been able to hand out. And again, I'm not saying that each of those things is necessarily wrong, except for when the emphasis has been placed so much on that that they can say, sure, we don't have to say silver and gold we do not have. But the other end of that statement, to say, rise up in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, they've lost that power. That in their abundance of silver and gold, they lack the power to proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is partially what we see in other countries. And we see happening throughout the world. And we continue to hear accounts of the way in which God is moving in miraculous ways and how the Spirit is is healing. And we say, why isn't that here? And there are so many different reasons as to why we don't see maybe as much of that here as we do in other areas. But this is one of them. I want for us to all regularly be filled with wonder and amazement over what we see God doing. Over what we see God doing in the lives of those who are in fellowship with us. May that be our aim, to see hearts and minds transformed. Trusting that then God's going to take care of the rest. This past week at Daybreak, Daybreak Ministries downtown, most of you are aware of it. Those that are not, there's myself and Others who spend time there, who work there, who volunteer there, and that's our local pregnancy medical clinic. And we've expanded services. We're ministering to more men now. There's a lot of great things that are happening there. And this past week at Daybreak on Friday, we had two abortion-minded girls who came in. They had been in for their initial consultation, and they had told us that, that it was their plan to have an abortion. Plain and simple. Well, in the state of South Carolina, before you can do that, you're required to have an ultrasound. And so that's one of the, the services that we provide. They come in for their consultation. They have to come back for an ultrasound. And, of course, throughout that time, we're having consultation and counseling with them. And these two girls, they came in and they saw the lives of their unborn children on that ultrasound. And I'll tell you, they both left convinced that day of the importance of carrying their children through. That they left with resources in their hands. They left with Bible studies. They signed up for parenting classes. I mean, just a transformation. We didn't give them any money. They may have thought that at the beginning. They may have thought, this is what I need. If I'm going to keep this baby, this is what I need. And if you can't provide this for me, then I have no other way out of this circumstance. But we gave them Jesus Christ. We pointed them to life. We helped them to understand the abundant life in Christ that God intends for us all. And it transformed their hearts and their minds. And I have no doubt that as they go, they see their families and they go into their workplaces and they go back to school and wherever it is, that there are going to be those who are filled with wonder and amazement over why is this person so different now? They're making different choices now. They're living differently now. There's a different behavior that I see in their lives. There's a different personality. They're transformed. And in verse 11, now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, he held on to them. 
I'm not letting you guys go. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? You see, Peter recognizes here the opportunity that he now has to address the crowd and to preach Jesus. And first he will emphasize that this was not the power of his own doing. This wasn't his own flesh. And so whenever you witness a mighty work of God, whenever you're witness to a mighty move of the Spirit, that a great measure of its legitimacy is the degree to which they bring all glory to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. If there is an absence of that, then you need to question it. And you need to question their motives. And here, Peter's over and over again, he's got the opportunity even to say, yeah, you know, it's because of the faith in my life. It's because of, you know, what he could still emphasize Jesus Christ, but he could emphasize the working of the Holy Spirit in his life if he wanted to here and, and probably get away with it. And he doesn't. He doesn't attempt to do that at all. He brings all glory to Jesus Christ. And now here he stands before, and specifically in this context, these are the Jews. And so now he begins to proclaim to them, that this power that they observed came from Jesus Christ. And not just Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The God of who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers. Glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One. You denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. This perfect soundness. He's been made whole. And it's through the name of Jesus. Power in the name of Jesus. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that this man is before you today, they say. Peter doesn't attempt to bear any credit for what was done, but he brings all glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter exalts Jesus as he boldly proclaims the truth. An emphasis there on boldly, because here he stands in the temple, and all of these Jews are surrounding him now, and he's going to basically tell them, you guys are murderers. That's a bold statement. He says, I've done it before. This is the truth of the gospel that I'm sharing. This is the ministry that God has given me that I want to help them understand what's happened here. And so he preaches to these Jews, and he places the blame squarely on their shoulders for the crucifixion of Jesus. And he's through the Spirit then, as we touched on at the end of chapter 3, he's bringing conviction of sin, helping them to see the sin in their lives and the fact that they are guilty. This is a critical component of a true gospel message. If you hear a gospel and it doesn't include any mention of sin and need of forgiveness, then it's a false gospel, and it will lead people astray. Yet now, brethren, verse 17, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled." There is a distinct difference between sin done in ignorance and sin that is a product of willful disobedience. Are they still guilty? Yes. 
But we even see within numbers that there is a difference. There is even a punishment that's outlined differently for those who sin in ignorance versus those in willful disobedience. And so here Peter's recognizing that their sin was in ignorance. Jesus himself from the cross pleads the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Again, does it make them innocent? No. But there's a difference when they're sinning in ignorance. Furthermore, he emphasizes that though they were guilty of the murder of Jesus Christ, that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. We see Joseph say that to his brothers as they've thrown him in slavery, sold him off into slavery, and he goes to Egypt, and he lives this life, and never does he expect that he's going to encounter his brothers and his family quite the way that he, he does. It's an incredible story, but the most important component of it is that he recognizes God's plan. And so in similar fashion then here, what they did to Jesus, what we have done to Jesus, because we're implicated in this as well, and we'll see that unfold, what happened to Jesus didn't derail God's plan, didn't cause God to go, whoa, I didn't see that coming, but rather that his plan was fulfilled. And so Peter says to them, as conviction is coming upon them as the awareness of their sin is coming upon them. He says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. And so here now he's giving some of the same language that he gave in his first sermon. as He says, repent. And so this now is becoming the message. This is becoming the message of the gospel that you must repent, that you must turn from your ways. Repent doesn't mean just to simply say, oh, I'm sorry that we did that. I feel bad about that. I'm grieved over that. But no, I'm not going to do that again. I was headed this direction. Now I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go this direction instead. That's repentance. The decision to do it differently. To live differently. How? Be converted. Surrender to Jesus Christ so that you can become a new creation. And in so doing, your sins can be blotted away. Wiped away. Washed clean. That's what blotted out means. In this particular time, they had different paper and different ink than what we have. Our ink today and our paper, it has acid in it. When you write on it, it goes into the paper and you can't get it out. At this particular time, you could pretty much just wash the ink right off the paper. So when he says that it may be blotted out, that your sins may be blotted out, that he literally means that they could just be wiped away. Do we rejoice in that today? Do you have knowledge of that today? Are you confident in that today? That your sins have been blotted out? Or once again, are you in a particular condition, content to stay in that condition, expecting that the sufficient things will be brought to you to simply maintain you and sustain you in that condition? Or are you willing to recognize that God wants more for you? This is the amazing thing about the gospel. As we start to come to a close here, the gospel must first bring conviction. Conviction of sin. We must realize that we are guilty, and in need of forgiveness. But from that point follows hope, hope of forgiveness. Conviction may come, but there is so much more beyond that. The gospel, here's the cool part, the gospel goes from prosecution to defense to a pardoning in one message. Do you ever see that unfold in the courts today? Do you ever see somebody come in and say, I'm going to prosecute you, and then I'm going to defend you, and then I'm going to set you free? You think you've lost your mind. That's not how this goes. But that's what the gospel does for us. It convicts, it prosecutes, it defends, and it pardons. 
all in one full message. And it's amazing because no other message, no other religion does that. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. There is so much we could unpack from those couple of verses there that we won't be able to today. Come on Wednesday night. Come to the Revelation study. There's parts of that that are being referenced right there. These times of refreshing may come. Times of refreshing, Christian, are still yet to come. In fact, not just Christian, this is a promise to all of us, not just Christians, that Jesus will come back, that He will restore all things. Yet it is only to those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior that can experience the blessings of this refreshing. The implication then here in this refreshing as well is that Israel must repent. That is part of the process that needs to unfold. It was Peter's desire to give the Jews at this time the opportunity to repent. He wanted every single one of them to repent. But sadly, many of them would not. And some rejected Jesus for a second time. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. You see, it doesn't say every soul that gets a chance. It says every soul that will not hear. There is a choice in the matter. There are those at this time that will reject him. And many will still today, in part because we expect something other than what God has for us, like the lame beggar. For these Jews, they expected a political Messiah. They expected something, they expected something, but they expected something different, not a suffering king. For those today, I, I don't know what all of the different expectations are. Many are limited by what the world tells us we should want, we should desire, what is good for us, what the solution is. Many are told that, that to, to surrender, to be humble, to recognize your failures, to recognize that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. Well, that's just unheard of because we have confidence in self, this great humanistic society that we now live in. And they refuse to hear. Peter says to them, and this is the point he's trying to say to them as this has been told from the very beginning. Verse 24, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's trying to appeal to what they know. The fact that this makes sense. Jesus makes sense. You're just not seeing him for who he really is. But here's such an awesome implication in verse 26. He says, to you first. So guess who's second? It's us. It's the Gentiles. We will see very soon that the message will start to be brought to the Gentiles. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. You see, it's been told from the very beginning. And while much of the implication of this text today seems placed upon the Jews, yes, by context and in reality, we are all guilty. Peter says, the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God raised Jesus up. And it means that then the gospel is about to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. This message, and, and this message that goes will be the same. Repent. Be converted. Be baptized. We're all complicit. Yet the gospel serves once again as the prosecution, defense, and pardon all in one. It is a message of hope. It is a message of forgiveness. And it still changes lives today. Amen?
There's three key things I want you to hear from the message today, the first of which is that there is power in the name of Jesus. Do you believe that today? There is power in the name of Jesus. Secondly, when lives are transformed, we should see evidence of it. Is your life today conveying evidence of transformation? And finally then, to receive or reject Jesus is a choice, both with completely polar outcomes. There's power in the name of Jesus. And if you believe that, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then there should be evidence of that within your life. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, before we go to a time of worship, I just want to encourage each and every one of us to proclaim what we know of Jesus here today. That if we believe that that truly there's power in the name of Jesus, that we would express that here today. That we would sing praises to Him that we would thank God for what He has done in our lives. And in faithfulness to what God calls us to, I would want to give the opportunity for anyone who is here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, or who may have recognized that that there just isn't evidence in your life today like there was, and you know that maybe you've wandered away, and I would just ask that in this very moment you would surrender, that you would pray along with me, Heavenly Father, Lord, I've sinned against You, and I ask forgiveness for all of my sins. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and rose again. Father, I give you my life, and I pray, Lord, do with it as you wish. I want Jesus Christ in my life and in my heart, and I want him to reign. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Well, Father, we ask for your blessing upon each of these here, Lord. I would again pray, Lord, as we go and we close in this time of worship, Lord, that we would cry out for that individual here today who's who's recognizing a a need for a difference in their life, Lord. May this serve, Lord, as just a glorious day for them to rejoice in the way in which you were drawing them to yourself. May we rejoice together as a family who celebrates, Lord, as we sing praises to our God and King, as we sing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.